We've been in a long series through, through Mark's gospel, looking at who Christ is, uh, having the text read us as well, and we've been learning a lot about who Jesus is. Uh, I'll talk about this in a little bit, but Mark has a very intriguing way of describing Jesus in, in a way that the other gospels do not. Uh, if you go through John's gospel, John is really explicit in how he describes Jesus. Mark has a little bit more subtle dis- subtleness uh, to him in how he describes Jesus, and he does it in a different way. Um, but before we get into Mark 6, I've got to just kind of lay some, some context and groundwork before we get there. We'll be in Mark 6, verse 45. I'm going to start with Exodus 33. Exodus 33, verse 18 says, and Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory And and notice this phrasing here, when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft on the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I I will take my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not be seeing now. Uh, If you're following along, the next chapter, verse 5, chapter 34, verse 5 says, The Lord then descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And it goes on with his name. The Lord passed before him. There's that phrase again and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he continues on describing who he is by identifying what his name is. Now, the word back here, when he says that I will pass before you and you will, you will kind of see my, my back, this Scholars would just suggest that this literally means that this is where he was. So you won't be able to see his face. You won't actually be able to see him in his fullness, but you'll just see where he actually was. This is a ground theology or ground zero of a theology of who God is. Uh, Many people would say to you, well, it's hard to know who God is. God is just kind of this out there being that we really can't understand. Well, right here, God kind of gives like this self-disclosure statement of who he is. He's like, all right, you want to know who I am? I'll tell you who I am. I, I'm, I am God. I am gracious. I am merciful. I am slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And God reveals himself to Moses, and God has revealed himself to us. So many people believe that like the theology of God is just so hard to kind of be how we can't really understand who God is. Well, if you just read your Bible, it's pretty clear who God is. We don't have to like go into like this, this in-depth study of identifying and understanding who God is. God's just like, listen, you want to know who I am? I'll tell you. I'm gracious. I'm merciful. I'm slow to anger. I'm, I'm steadfast. I'm abounding in this steadfast love and faithfulness. And he passed by Moses Three times. And I want you to kind of lock that phrase into your head there when he says he passed by. Now flip over. I've got just two more of these Old Testament scriptures for you to Job. Um, 
not Job, Job, Job chapter 9. It's right before uh, the Psalms and all of that um, poetry language. Job is like kind of reading an ancient play. It's a very intriguing, very interesting, in-depth study of the look of a man who was faithful with God and, and despite his faithfulness went through some incredibly trying times. I want to pick it up in Job verse nine, chapter 9 and read just a few verses starting in verse number 1. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know this, that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise and hard and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. He who removes mountains, and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble? Who commands the sun and it does not rise? Who seals up the stars? And pay attention to this. Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? That phrase, trampled the waves of the sea, can literally be translated as, as, as who is the one who walks on water? Now, this idea of God being the one who walks on water is kind of a, an interesting theme that we can see throughout Scripture. In fact, Psalm 77 is my last Old Testament reference. Psalm 77 verse 16 says, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Even the psalmist recognizes that there is an idea of a God who walks on water. This is a theme that we can go through the Old Testament, and we find that one of the ways you know God is God is the only one who can walk on water. And if you're still wondering, well, what section of Scripture are we on in Mark? Well, I just kind of gave it away. Talking about Jesus walking on water. Now, one of the dangers of going through a lot of these, uh, these stories and going through the book of Mark, we go through these very familiarized stories, and we're like, well, I don't need this. I already understand what, the, uh, what, what you're going to say to me, preacher, but I just want you just to hang tight with me for just a moment. I want to see something a little bit deeper, what's ha- happening in Mark's gospel. In Mark 6, where we left off, we left off where Jesus just fed 5,000 men. And, and he left kind of the disciples really just kind of in this entangled moment in their spirituality where, where there's this hardness of heart and where, where they're like, I, don't, I can't believe Jesus would, you're, you're going to feed these guys? You're going to feed these people here? And Jesus like, actually, you're going to do it, and I'm going to do it through you. And then Jesus kind of uses a little humor and a satire at the end and where all these disciples, these 12 disciples had all of this unbelief, like, I'm tired, let's just send them on their way. Jesus leaves 12 baskets full, and he tells the disciples, all right, each of you get one. And now we pick it up where Jesus is about to head off and do something interesting. In Mark's gospel, 
6, verse 45. Immediately he made, or, or this can be translated as, as Jesus here, when it says he made, he forced, all right? All right, this isn't Jesus to be like, all right, boys, y'all come on. We're going to go get on this boat right here, right? No, Jesus is like, get on the boat. I don't want nothing to, like, you are going to get on this boat. I'm not going with you. So this is what Jesus is doing here. He's forcing the disciples, get on the boat, and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. Now, while he dismissed the crowd, and after he had taken leave of them, he, being Jesus, went up on the mountain to pray. Now, notice Jesus does not go with the disciples. He goes by himself to a secluded area up in the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea. And he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, that's between around 3 to 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to, notice notice this phrase right here, what does it say? Pass by them. Gee, I wonder where we've heard that before. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. Or in this context, they would have likely thought this was a sea demon. Imagine that. And they cried out, as they should have. Any grown man that thinks there's a sea demon out in the sea should cry out, for they saw saw him, and they were mortified. They were terrified. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened when they had crossed over they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore and when they got out of the boat the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people to their beds to wherever they heard he was, and whenever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. We've heard that before. And as many touched it were made well. Now that's our story. There's a lot going on in here, and I think if we were to just be careful not to say, well, I've heard this before. I know this story. There's a rough stop. Jesus gets on your boat. He's going to make all things all humducky for you, and it's going to be so grand and great for you. I just made up a word. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, and, but this is different. All right? There's a lot of things happening in here. Again, I want to take you back to how Mark is a very um, incredible writer when he's writing the gospel here. This story is a story about who God is. Mark is taking us back to some Exodus-type language. He's not like John. And when John talks about Jesus, um, and he writes when Jesus explains himself, you know, J- Jesus would just be pretty upfront, like, like, like you, you, you want to see the Father where you're looking at him. Like when Jesus makes so many claims 
of his deity. The Pharisees get really just kind of ticked off at Jesus, and they're ready to pounce him with some stones. And so Mark is a little bit different in how he describes the deity of Jesus. Mark doesn't explicitly say who Jesus is as God. He is rather showing us that Jesus is God. If you think back in Mark chapter 2, which seems like decades ago when we were there, Jesus forgave sins and he describes it in this narrative about how Jesus looks at the sick man and he tells him, your sins are forgiven. But who could only do that? God can only do that. And so the Pharisees, they see this. They're like, wait, wait a minute. So you're equating yourself with, a, with God, with Yahweh? In Mark chapter 4, Jesus says to the winds and the waves, quiet, be still. And, and who could only have command over nature? God can. And here in this text, Jesus is walking on water, and only God can do that. And then on top of that, Mark writes that he was about to pass by them. Mark is like Mark is using Exodus language to describe who God is in the person of Jesus Christ. You remember that time that God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 33? They didn't have chapters back then, but hang with me, right? Um, this, this is the guy. This is the one who revealed himself to Moses. He's standing right here. This is who Jesus is. And when he says that he's even using a phrase found in Exodus chapter 3, when he tells the disciples, it is I, this is uh, translated in the Greek as the ego I me. And this is how God described himself to Moses in the burning bush. When Moses asked the question, who do I tell Pharaoh uh, who sent me? And, and God tells Moses, I am that I am. And translated as the Greek, it says, I ego me," which is the same language that Jesus is using here. Do you want to know what the Father looks like? You have this emptiness, this longing to know who is God. Mark is giving us something a little bit more than just a story about walking on water because there may have been this anticipation of there being this longing about there will be a God who walks on water and suddenly Mark describes this scenario. There is the God who walks on water and his name is Jesus Christ. You want to know who God is? He is here revealed before us we don't know what God looks like, how he thinks, how, how he communicates, what, what is the language that he uses, how does he, how does he use compassion, how does he use grace, like how does, how, how does God function? Well, we don't have to look far, it's right here in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not a God, Jesus is the living God in the flesh before us. The God who stamps his footprint on the waters. The God who tramples the waves. And the God who reveals himself to these disciples. And the one who has revealed himself through scripture to all of us here. See, he is not a God that does not want to be known. 
There's an idea in theology we call deism where, where God is just up in the heavens and he's just got his hands up and he's like, you know what, y'all just figure it out on yourself. He's detached from humanity. That is not who God is. God is involved in the affairs of all of us. In this text, Mark is added again, showing us who Jesus, that Jesus is God. Now, I, I want to pause here and just kind of give us a breakdown of our view of Jesus at times. Well, let me just rephrase this and say that this is at times a breakdown of how I want to view Jesus at times. Sometimes I want to view Jesus as useful to me on my terms. There are times where I want to be, that I want Jesus to be useful for me, and I want him to do things on my terms. So here's what I'll do. I try to give Jesus um, a new PR agency, right? Like, I don't know about all this Jesus, but I want him to look how, uh, I want him to be formed in my mold. And so here's how it kind of works out. Like, no way Jesus would want me to go through a bad situation. That's not Jesus at all. No way Jesus would want me to fight for my marriage. That's not Jesus. He wouldn't, want, he wouldn't require something hefty out of me. No way Jesus would allow me to go through trials and, and situations and in our context today. No way Jesus would want me to go through this type of storm. Jesus just wants me happy, right? He wants, he wants me to be blessed, abundantly blessed with riches and, and, and great relationships. Jesus would never allow there to be friction in my relationship. Isn't it interesting how we've kind of painted Jesus in this type of fashion to where we think Jesus is just about our happiness? And we have, we have raped Jesus of who he really is and what he wants from us. Yeah, I'm not saying don't be happy, right? Some of us could use to smile a little bit more. But please hear me, Jesus is not after your happiness. He is after your heart. He is after not so you can modify your behavior just a little bit so you'd start treating your wife a little better. And, and yes, please do those things. But in the end, that's not what Jesus is after. He's here to give you new life. He is God over all things. He has created all things. And he is here so that we can have life fully in him. And so, and so there are these tendencies, especially in, in American culture and our society, where we want Jesus to kind of fit these molds and we, where we want Jesus to kind of, kind of be there just for me, be there for my happiness, be there so that I can have a really great life. Well, let's ask the disciples here in this context of the story, how's that working out for them? Jesus is the one who told them to get in the boat. So this is a story about Mark giving us an understanding of who is God. 
and who is Jesus. This is also a story, I mean, we'd be remiss not to say that this, is a, this isn't a story about storms, but this is indeed a story about when you follow God, what can happen to you. I don't know if you've ever felt like the disciples in this story, but they were forced to do something against, listen to this now, they were, they were physically forced to do something, and if they're being forced to do something, that kind of alludes to me thinking that they really didn't want to do it. And who is the one forcing them to do the thing they didn't want to do? Oh, that's Satan, because Satan's the only one that does that kind of stuff. Satan's the only one. He's the mean one. He's the one trying to force me to go commit all these different bad kind of sins, right? Oh, how dare we talk about Jesus in this fashion? But who's the one that forced them into the boat? Jesus is. I, I don't know if you've ever felt like these disciples before. You ever feel like the wind has been against you? Well, you haven't been in cedar long enough. Wind will blow you down. Never felt alone? Never felt like you're in a storm and Jesus left you so that he can go do what? Like be by himself and pray? Oh, well, okay, gee, okay, thanks, Jesus. Hope you're getting your respite. Hope you're getting your retreat that you needed, Jesus. Meanwhile, we're out here on the boat dying. What is it saying there? They're, they're painfully against the wind. All right, that doesn't sound like a good time to me. They felt terrified. Tuck says the disciples were terrified about what is happening to them and what they potentially they think they see out in the distance. Ever felt like you've had like this five-year plan and it just kind of blows up in your face and you're like, well, there goes that five-year plan. If you've answered yes to those, then you are in really good company. In fact, I think the thing to do, if that is you, is not to jump ship, but is to keep going. I love how the text says that they're in a storm right before dawn. It's the darkest point of night, but light is quickly about to break through the darkness. They're in the, the, the middle of this. They're in the heat of it. And I love the examples that the disciples are giving us here in this text because so many times we look at the disciples and we think, man, those guys are a bunch of fools. And I think you'd be right into thinking that in some cases. Or maybe they have no other option but to stay on the boat. But I think there's a lesson there that Jesus put them on this boat and they did not jump ship. They did not abandon the situation just because it was terrifying. I don't know if you've walked through difficult situations in your life. I don't know if you've been through the pains of life. But I've, I've witnessed those points, and, and I'll be honest with you, I've said yes to God so many times, 
And, and I feel like those times that I've said yes to God, I've been led astray, and I felt like Jeremiah the prophet when he says, you have sabotaged me. When Jeremiah the prophet was called by God, and God was like, all right, every time you speak, nobody's going to pay attention. In fact, you're going to find yourself beat up naked in a ditch. All right, now how many of you are like, yeah, sign me up for that one. Yeah, nobody, and if that's you, you're weird and need help, man. Like nobody wants to be that guy who speaks the word of the Lord, and every time he opens up his mouth, he gets thrown in the ditch, butt naked, left there to die. And then one moment we see the humanity of Jeremiah and his angst to the Lord, and he says, God, you have left me here to die. You've sabotaged me. Now, does God sabotage people? No. But are these feelings of rawness and the emotion of it, God, you've led me here just to be met with all of this adversity? You've led me here just to go through the refinement once again? Yeah, thanks. God, I appreciate that. You've just called us here and you've just led us here in the storm, Jesus. And one of the things about the sea and the storms and why this is kind of a central theme in Christendom when we, when we speak to, you know, brother, you're just going through a storm or you're just going through this. Well, there was, there was a lot of thought in ancient Israel that the sea was viewed as an evil place. That's why John the Revelator and John's um, in, in Revelation talks about how there is no more sea. All right, and he's, they're rejoicing because, because to them, sea meant destruction. Sea meant, that's the place where you go to die. Sea meant, you know, this is where my, my ships are going to sink. We're all going to die. We're going to be pelted by the coldness of the rain. And so for them, the sea was viewed as a very evil place. On top of that, you insert a storm in the sea, and you have more evil and more wickedness on top of what they already viewed as being evil. The season that they're in likely was very a cold night for them in this season. So imagine being on the boat that Jesus put you on forcibly. It's cold at night. And imagine what those raindrops felt as they pierced your face. So this isn't just them on some little sailboat, just, you know, got a little rocky waves. This is terrifying. I want us to feel, feel that weight of the storm. Now, just a couple of things about what happens here. Notice in this storm, God reveals himself right in the middle of the storm. Jesus could have walked these guys up the mountain. It sure would have been a lot easier. Instead of him all being all forcible and stuff, like, why, Jesus, calm down. Like, why can't we just go up to the mountain? Like, Jesus could have done that. So, I don't know about you, but like, in my life, I get a more... I don't want to say revelation or, or just kind of a revealing of who God is. Not when I'm at batting at a thousand, not when I'm at my A game, not when I'm on the mountaintop experiences. I get a better understanding of who God is when I'm in trauma. 
when I'm in life's storms, that's when I get a better revelation of who God is. And I think it's, I don't think it's odd that God would choose or Mark would want to write this and choose to, in a way, describe Jesus as God in the middle of this storm. Like, and I've, I've learned, like, over the past two years of my life, um, I, I get this. Like, the past two years of my life, I have felt like this is me. Like, God's like, all right, time to get on the boat again. You know, and it's like, I don't want to get on the boat. No more times, please. But the past two years of my life have felt like this. God is like, it's time to get back on the boat. It's time for me to refine you yet again. And it's in those moments where God is putting me back on the boat right in the dead middle of the storm is when I realize I've learned how loving and forgiving he is because I understand how bitter and unforgiving I am not. Like I understand how, how bitter I can be and how, how resentful I can be. I've learned more about God's grace and his mercy because in those moments of the storm, I've learned how, re, how judgmental I can be. I, I've, I've learned more about his steadfast love and him being slow to anger because how quick I am to throw jabs and to, to, to be steadfast only in my vitriol towards someone. It's revealing when I'm in those moments and those storms of how much more I have to grow to be more like the Father. And I've learned that He loves me, like in my storms in my life. Like I learned, I have learned so much in the past two years how much He loves me despite me. Like despite me going, and I'm pretty sure like these disciples are probably thinking, I know, y'all, Jesus, he. I don't know if he's the right guy. So despite me saying, God, I've got my fist towards the heaven, despite despite me questioning him, despite me doubting, despite all of these weird things that I'm going through in my mind, despite all of that, I've learned more how the Father really loves me. Loves me with my fist towards him. Loves me with the questions going straight at him. Loves me with the doubts, like just infiltrating my brain. He still loves me. It's interesting how we begin to doubt God in the middle of our trauma. And these disciples, they're terrified. Oh, no, it's, it's a sea demon. Oh, no, it's Patrick Swayze. Oh, no, it's, it's all of these people. Some of you will get that joke much later. And they're terrified, and they just saw Jesus perform miracles, feeding the 5,000. I got to just say, like, thank God I'm not God. You know, because if I'm Jesus, I'm not just about to pass by and reveal myself. I'm about to get up on that boat and whoop somebody. Like, haven't y'all learned already? Like, fool, what's wrong with you? Haven't you already learned who I am and what I'm doing for you? That I am not leaving you. I'm not abandoning you. But that's not how Jesus responds in our moments of being utterly terrified. He doesn't go in there and like, what's wrong with you? Why are you so scared? As we often do sometimes to our children. 
I'm scared. Why? There's nothing to be scared of. Grow up, you four-year-old. Like we have this high, maybe that's me. Okay, I'll go to therapy then. Jesus doesn't respond in that way. He responds with this famous phrase of take, take heart. It's, it's, it's me. It's going to be okay. Do not be afraid. Then why are we so afraid? Right? I've often said, in my 40 years of serving the Lord, I haven't served the Lord all my 40 years, but in my 40 years of, of living on this earth, I have, I, I find myself when I get into these types of situations, these situations where it's terrifying and, and I'm like, oh, I don't know what God's going to do now. Always ask this question of, you know, I know you've been faithful for 40 years, but will you be faithful in this moment? Like, why, why, why do I do that? You know, it's like, ha-ha, I got you, God. You're not going to be faithful now. And then he's, he's faithful. Like, we question God's faithfulness for however long you've been serving or however long you've been breathing. And then every time a new storm arises, every time a new situation comes up, we always go, yeah, but I don't know if you'll be faithful here. Meanwhile, Jesus is right here standing before us and saying, hey, take heart. It's me. Do not be afraid. Don't fear. There's a reason why the Bible, there's a continuous theme throughout all the scripture that says, do not be afraid. Because we have Christ. Christ. There's also something about the storm that he will use the storms of our life for something good. Now, pay attention, and I'm almost done. The plan was to go to Bethsaida. Do you remember this? You see this? That's the plan. You're going to get on this boat, and then you're going to go off to Bethsaida. Where'd they end up? That funny G word. Gnesaret. However you want to say it. But, that, but, but Jesus, that wasn't the plan. We were supposed to go to Bethsaida. Isn't that like God? They're just going to throw in all your plans all up in the air. Right? He's like your five-year plan. He's like, ha, ha, gotcha. You're not really going to Bethsaida. You're going somewhere else. And, and this is so, so very important. Because watch what happened where they landed. What happened? An opportunity for Jesus to heal people, and to set them free from their sins. Hundreds of people now have this opportunity because Jesus kind of changed their course a little bit. So what did he do? He took what was evil, what was a bad situation, put them on a different track, and used it for not their good, not just for their good, and for his good, but for the people that he crossed their path with. So these people are suffering, and they are in this moment of sickness and sin, and now there's this new opportunity, all because the disciples were in the storm. Friends, let me just tell you that your storm does have purpose in Christ Jesus. This is what Romans would say, that he works all things out for our good. 
for those who love Christ. I don't know what that looks like. I've seen some pretty jacked up, messed up situations. And I have been that guy going, I don't know how you're going to get out of this one, God. Like, how can you make something good of this? I, I don't know, but I just know that he's faithful to his word and he will. We may not see it on this side of eternity, but I know God is faithful in his word and he will make good on his promise. Lastly, this is also a story about perseverance. Um, it, I, I love this This. One quick point here. One thing that the disciples did not do. Now, I don't know if this water is freezing and they just didn't want to risk hypothermia. I don't know how close they were to the shore. They could have swam the distance. But there's something about this story about the disciples that speaks to me. And it's a story of endurance. It's, it's a story of them not jumping ship when things go bad. And that's a testament to us that just because we're going through a bad situation, just because things are looking pretty dim, that does not mean that God has abandoned you. And it also doesn't mean that God is ready for you to jump ship. Again, it goes back to that view of Jesus. Well, Jesus wouldn't want me to be in this situation. No, maybe Jesus is the one that puts you in the situation. Strengthening you giving you the spirit of endurance. And what does that do? That just makes you stronger in Christ. Galatians 6, 9 says that, and let us not grow weary while doing good, but for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. We trust in him in the process. We trust in what Ephesians 6 says, that when you've done all you can do, you just Stand. You're frustrated. You, we have this tendency to give up when things are going our way. But the Bible would call us to persevere. The Bible would call us to a spirit of endurance. Rough relationship? No, God has called me to be in this relationship. Uh, rough marriage? I'm out should not be the answer. I'm in this for the long haul is the answer. Rough situation, rough job, your answer shouldn't always be, I'm out. No, because the God has called you to be, have a spirit of endurance and perseverance. This is counterculture to what culture wants you to believe. Oh, you do you, boo. Things are bad. Well, then go find a better relationship. That's not the narrative of Scripture and the call that God has placed on your life. Things are bad. Stick with it. Things are tough in your life. Hang in there. Stand. Do not grow weary. Do not jump ship. Just endure. Now, here's the great news about endurance. And I'm done. Here's the great news about endurance. Who is the one that causes you to endure? Is it you? So the call of endurance that God has given you is not even required of you because it's the Spirit of God working in you. He is the one who is causing you to endure. That's great news for all of us who are performance makers in this room because all I have to do is just rest in knowing 
you know what, God, if you've got me in this situation, I know that by your spirit, by your power, I am going to get through this.